So the handout, uh, Carol and my daughter sit in the front row. Uh, how are you? She picked up the handout. She said, it's heavy. Uh, so there's a lot of pages in here, and I don't see any way we're going to be able to get through all of the concepts that have come into my mind this week. Um, and so I guess I just commend the handout to you as a reference. It's just my approach on the issue of racial reconciliation and uh, some thoughts. There are a few issues that I've studied in, in my 20 plus years of being pastor here that have been as gnarly and complex and multifaceted as this one. And I have to say, sadly, uh, have proven to be so divisive, even within the realms that I run in, uh, where people just have a hard time seeing it the same way. Um, so, uh, you know, it just takes, it takes a certain amount of, um, of trust in the Lord, courage, uh, willingness to trust His Word to forge ahead. Um, but for me, honestly, uh, it's been such a delight, an absolute delight, over the last three or four years to work on this book on heaven. And I just see how important it is for us to have a heavenly perspective as we go through different things on earth. I mean, it's just there again and again for us to, to realize the kind of, of triumph, let's put it that way, the absolute victory that the gospel and that, that God's grace is going to have over racism. We're going to see it with our own eyes. It's going to be an absolute crushing victory in heaven. And the Bible gives us enough prevision of it that we can, we can live accordingly now. And that's my goal. Uh, my desire is as much as possible to live out the supernatural unity that the Lord wants us to live out while we can. But we have a lot of history. And so some of the more painful moments ahead of us, even this morning, is to just briefly look backward and try to understand where, where we've come from and where we should go. So that's just a preamble that I didn't calculate. It's not in your handout, so there it is. We're in, we're in trouble already. So let's open in prayer and we'll get going. Father, I come before you now and I confess my own weakness, my own limitations, my own... Uh, sin and uh, the struggles that I have in my life hinder your uh, working through me. And I ask that you would supernaturally set my flesh aside. Uh, and I pray that you do the same for my brothers and sisters that are here. Help us to just set aside our sin nature. And help us, O oh Lord, to learn the truth that comes from your perfect word. I'm in awe of the Bible. I'm in awe of the perfection of your word and how it addresses everything we could ever face and how written thousands of years ago it's still fresh and powerful. And so I pray that you be with us, not just right now in this class, but as I uh, preach on, on head coverings, on gender-based leadership in the church <coughs> at worship. That's another controversial issue that you would just help us as, as a church, First Baptist Durham, to have a supernatural <coughs> unity even in the midst of controversial issues that is really winsome and attractive to uh, the world that we live in, which is so confused and so divided and so uh, filled with sin. So just help us, help me now, and help us to make the most of the time that we have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It says in Psalm 90, uh, that Moses said, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What that means is we need to know there's a limited amount of time we have on earth. So what does that have to do with me? Well, there's a limited number of minutes we have this morning. And uh, we have to make the most of it. So I have to do a kind of a continual triage in my mind, even as a handout I've given you. I want to be certain to major on scriptural truth and not on sociological analysis. I'm not great at sociological analysis. I'm not specially trained. I am a Christian. I've read the Bible for a lot of years. I have some opinions. 
uh, and I'll do what I can, but I, my, my home base is when I have the solid rock of God's Word under my feet. So that's what I'm going to try to do. Uh, in terms of uh, Q&A, I don't have a lot of time and my mind set aside for it, but it's important to me that you all feel free to stop me if there's something I've said that, that you're, you want some clarification on. If you just have kind of an angle or a point to make, it's, it would be harder because everybody in the room probably has one of those. Um, so, but if there's something that I've taught that, that you want some clarification, I could stop in a moment and answer it. So let's dig in. And I want to begin with the end. I want to begin with where we're heading. Uh, I want to begin with just a biblical kind of meditation on unity and on what God is doing. One of the most, I think, underrated and significant <laughs> verses in the New Testament is in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. I say underrated because I don't see a lot of people talking about it. I haven't talked about it a lot. It's the kind of thing that it just has grown and grown on me. And if you look at what it says, uh, if someone could read it for us, it's the first uh, scripture reference, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's incredible. That's just incredible. It's the kind of thing I would, I would just urge you, take it home even this afternoon evening meditating. First of all, just the grace that God's given us to tell us what he's doing in the world. We're not confused. It's like I'm, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. What is it he's doing here in Christ in particular in redemption? And what does it say he's doing? He's bringing all things together and making them one under one head. Who is Christ. So the idea there, and the more I meditate on it, is that sin has had the effect in on the universe, in the spiritual and physical realm, of a fragmentation grenade. Blew things apart that were meant to be together. And that God in Christ is bringing things back together and making them one. And so the more you think about that, it's just a very powerful concept. The unification of all things. <coughs> Sin has divided and broken things apart. Most importantly, nothing's more important than this, broken apart the fellowship we human beings were meant to have with God. That there was a significant rupture in our relationship with God. That vertical rupturing happened right away. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they became God's enemies, and God became their enemy. And so it teaches us in Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Other verses teach that we were enemies of God, Romans 5.8. If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were his enemies, um, you know, we were, uh, Christ died for us. Uh, next, horizontally, the fellowship human to human has been ruptured. We see it right away with Adam and Eve. They cover themselves over with fig leaves. So their husband and wife, they were naked and not ashamed. Then sin enters. Now they're ashamed and they're hiding from each other. And so there's that rupturing horizontally, you know, human to human. And there's so many verses I could point this out. But Titus 3.3, 3, someone read that for us. time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's horrible. That's true. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And that comes from sin. That's a universal human condition, right from the garden. Uh, the harmony also of the physical universe has been ruptured. 
Uh, Romans 8 says that creation is in bondage to decay. If you think about decay, it's just the breaking apart of things that should be together. Uh, things falling apart, you know, uh, rotting and decaying and breaking down, things like that. Uh, again, uh, verse 22 of Romans 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. <clears throat> now here's the beautiful thing that God has done in Christ. In Christ, all this fragmentation has been decisively reversed, although the effects of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection are not, have not fully worked out yet. But uh, the fragmentation has been reversed and, and stopped, and that God is in the process now of bringing all things together under one head, even Christ. And by the way, when we go to worship today and I talk about the headship of, of, uh, of woman as man, the head of Christ as God, just keep that in mind, this idea of headship. Bringing everything together under the, under the headship of Christ. Most importantly, human beings vertically are reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, All this is from God. Uh, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So the most important thing the gospel does is it fixes the hostility between God and us. God is, if you're a Christian, God is no longer your enemy and never will be again. It's incredible. That, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's amazing. Uh, God had every right to destroy us, but he didn't do it. Instead, he loved us in Christ and so reconciled. And the ministry of reconciliation is first and foremost vertical. <coughs> vertical. That we human beings uh, have been reconciled to God and God to us. And it's not that we are reconciled, like we worked it out, we sat down at a table as equals and worked it all out. No, no, God reconciled us to himself in Christ. He did it. You know, we didn't even know we were his enemies, but he reconciled us, so that's powerful. Secondly, human beings will be reconciled to each other. A great part of the joy that we will have in heaven is each other. Each other. We are going to really enjoy each other in heaven. And I know you may be like, I don't know about that. <laughs> but understand how much our present sinfulness affects that. That's all going to be gone. You are going to be, if you're a Christian, you're going to be radiant. You're going to be shining like the sun in the kingdom of your Father, and so will a multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And each one of those people will be worth getting to know, and you will know them. And you will be one together with them, and you're going to enjoy them, and amazingly, they're going to enjoy you. All right, so that's, it's going to happen. So in the meantime, we have this incredible verse. Uh, someone read this for us, Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law of its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. All right, so um, when I preached through Ephesians, I preached two different sermons on this text. The first was the Jew-Gentile issue, which is home base for Ephesians 2. And the two, home base, exegetically, is Jew and Gentile have been made, made one. And the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility was 
uh, at least in part, caused by the uh, circumcision laws, the dietary regulations, all those ceremonial laws that set the Jews apart as a unique and special people, which are fulfilled in Jesus and no longer needed. Um, because Jesus has come, he's been identified as a Jew. When he said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews, that meant something because of those uh, ceremonial laws, but they're done now. So we don't have to circumcise our boy babies on the eighth day like the Jews did. You can do it for medical reasons if you choose, but there's no spiritual advantage at all to doing it. And that's just a symbol of all of those ceremonial laws, including dietary regulations. What Paul's saying here is that in Christ, now that Christ has come, by his death on the cross, he destroyed that barrier between them. Because he's doing something new now. And so it doesn't mean that Jew doesn't mean anything and Gentile doesn't mean anything. It does mean something, because he says to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. It does matter. And he says, I am a Jew. He says that in, in Romans chapter 10. Um, so there is that, that sense. It means something. But what it means is, in Christ, he's doing a new work, and he's made of the two one new person. Each of them radically transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So both, both the Jew that comes to Christ and the Gentile that comes to Christ, both of them have been made one new person. And not only that, you find uh, a perfect, and this is the goal, it's not going to happen in this world, but we yearn for it, perfect unity between the two. And so the two have become one uh, in Christ. Um, and it's just an amazing thing. Now here's the thing, I, I preached two sermons on it because uh, from my time as a missionary in Japan, I did not realize the amount of hostility there is in Asia over the events in World War II. And how much hostility there is between Koreans and Japanese, between Chinese and Japanese, and all of that's because of history. The things that happened during World War II that were utterly horrendous. The Imperial Japanese Army did some horrendous things. Um, and they're not forgotten. You know, people remember years later what was done. But the more you study world missions, the more you study just the condition of the church around the world, you begin to realize there are uh, racial divides all over the world. And you know, we are this morning looking at the, the black-white issue in America, and there's a lot of history to it, but you have to realize there are divides all over the world. And so we live in an us-versus-them world. And it's because people do horrible things, and they're remembered, and generationally remembered, and then there's, there's malice and there's difficulties. And so, uh, you know, you look at some of these things, like I've been to the Balkans multiple times, and there's lots of history in the Balkans of warfare between the Serbs and Croats, and they remember it. And they know what happened. I think about the Armenians, 1.5 million of them slaughtered by the Turks uh, in World War I. Many Americans don't even know that happened. That's a lot of, that's genocide. 1.5 million Armenians, they remember. The Armenians remember what the Turks did. Then there's the Hutus and the Tutsis in, um, in Rwanda. And there's just been generational slaughter between the two. And they're both African, they're both black. Uh, but they have tremendous hostility and hatred and memory of each other. Uh, this is just what sin does. And so once there are groups, and there's group A, group B, and then they start to interact and there's some sin, then you've got memory of that, and there's that us versus them. There is one and only one remedy to all that, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the thing that's so beautiful is it's not just maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. It's going to work. There are going to be Serbs and Croats, they're going to be Japanese and Korean and Chinese Christians. They're going to be black Christians, white Christians. They're going, and we are going to be one. In the pattern of the Trinity, it's staggering. That's where we're heading. And the more you just get your head around that, the more you swim in that, the better it will be for how we live here on earth. So that's pretty exciting. But all over the world, there is this kind of uh, these atrocities. We live in a fragmented world. 
and it's fractured by, uh, fragmented by sin and hatred, by long memories of what those people did to our people. Um, that's what we're dealing with. But we have heavenly unity in the future. Uh, someone read for us, John 17, 20 through 24. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Isn't that awesome? I could easily spend the rest of the day studying John 17, 22, 24. You might say, Pastor, I know very well that why you'd rather do this than head coverings. I know very well, all right? But, um, but just this is such a beautiful thing. One of, the, one of the key hermeneutical concepts in John 17, Jesus' so-called high priestly prayer, is keep in mind, Jesus gets everything he asked for. So that becomes a list. Just read through it. Everything he asked for, he's going to get. He never prays amiss. He never prays outside of the will of his Father, right? He never says, gee, I wish things would be better. When he prays for unity, patterned after the Trinity, may they be one as you and I are one. That's the unity we're going to experience in heaven. And I had to include verse 24, though it's not directly relevant. Father, I want those whom you have given me, the elect, to be with me where I am and to see my glory. Isn't that awesome? So it's fantastic to just think about where we're heading. In the meanwhile, though, we have to, and I'll circle back on this later, but I want to say it now. Jesus says, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. That's not a heavenly verse. That's a right now verse. So the world is watching. And as the church is drawn together in a Trinitarian unity. And I would add an, an additional feature. Specifically a surprising unity. If you get some of those groups that we talked about earlier, like Japanese and, and and Koreans or Japanese and Christian, or, or sorry, Chinese, sorry about that, and then, or Hutus and Tutsis, or blacks and white in America, it, whatever. And the world's like, now that's unusual to see that. And, and the gospel is the cause of it. That's very, very good for evangelism and mission. Let the, may they be brought to complete unity. So that's a process of sanctification where we more and more think like God. We're conformed and transformed and more and more we're made one with each other. We're, we're sanctified by the word and we become more and more Trinitarianly one, if that's a word, probably isn't. But the more we become one like the Father and the Son are one, the better it is for Christians. Conversely, we can see the more fractured and divided we are. Look at the Corinthians. There are, they had factions there. I follow this guy. I follow that guy. The more that's going on, the worse it is for evangelism. So, as Jesus said, they will know that you are Christians if you love one another. Part of that love is just that Trinitarian unity. So, the more that the church all over the world can break down these types of, of us versus them hostilities, the barrier dividing all things, the better it is for evangelism and mission. So, I'm going to say that later, but I wanted to say it right now because I want to be sure it gets said. Now, what is that unity? Philippians 2.2, I think, is a good description, especially in the NIV 84 is a good translation. That he wants the Philippians to be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. In other words, we agree about everything. 
We love the same, we have the same love, and we're moving in the same direction with the same goals. And you're like, is that even possible? Is that possible in a marriage? <laughs> it is. It's hard work because we all have sin, we have perspectives, and we have opinions. But there is a supernatural union. I'm saying in heaven, it will come true. You will completely agree with everyone there in heaven. About everything. Now that's amazing. And so, but the more we can do that, the better it is, that unity. Now, John's vision of heavenly unity. Somebody should really want to read this one. It's one of my favorite verses. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. <clears throat> After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So all of that multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation, I can tell you right now, they're not primarily thinking, hey, we're from every tribe, language, people, and nation. What are they thinking about at that moment? God. <coughs> Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Thank you for saving me. To God be the glory for saving someone like me. By the way, that's why I think heavenly memory is so important. You've got to know who we were, who we are, and what God did to get us there. And we'll be like so filled with humility and thankfulness. We will just be saying salvation belongs to our God. Again, the word salvation itself would be evacuated of meaning if we did not remember that we were sinners and we deserve help. I mean, what would that mean? Salvation from what? But if you remember who you were, and no regrets, no poisonous bad thoughts or any of that, just thankfulness, overwhelming thankfulness, we will be, it'll be just awesome worship. So salvation belongs to our heart. But still, it's worthy of mentioning in heaven that we did come from different backgrounds because it's to the glory of God that people were rescued. So in heaven, all racial divisions, seething resentments will be swallowed up in the grace of God, the atoning work of Christ, all barriers and dividing walls of hostility will be completely eradicated, and all the redeemed, still identifiable as originating from various cultural and tribal and linguistic backgrounds, amoral diversity, will be perfectly one in Christ. All right, this is the only answer there is for racial, national, and socioeconomic divisions that rip apart relationships on earth. There is no other answer. Government has a role uh, to play, and it does. And God set up government to restrain evil. And I think that we look to government to keep, um, you know, crime down and, and other aspects. There's, there's a, a, a reasonable role for government, but it's temporary. The government we're all yearning for is the kingship of Christ, amen, that he is, he is clearly our leader and we all follow him. That's where we're going. All right, so may they be brought to complete unity. I've already made this point. So let's now talk about our cultural context. Okay, so now we get into my weak attempts at sociological analysis. And you may have different analysis. Um, my interest, my PhD's in history, I like learning, uh, looking back, but some of the history is so very painful. Uh, you know, someone just said, why do we need to even look back? And why do we have to look back? And it's like, well, we can't be inconsistent. We look back at a lot of things. We celebrate missionary heroes. We celebrate, you know, things that happened in the Reformation. You can't just pick and choose. We had to look back and see what happened. And why are we where we're at? And so I'll do my best here. But one of the points I make in my book on heaven is that all human histories are imperfect and limited. Uh, they're all defective to some degree. They're defective by bias, by perspective. They're defective by limitation. There's some facts we didn't know. That's why we need God to be our heavenly teacher of history, because he won't have any of those problems. 
So in the meantime, we do our best uh, and we try to do some analysis. So for us, I think it's pretty clear that if you talk about us versus them, the, the most significant divide, uh, racial divide or us versus them divide in, in our history has been the black-white divide. Um, and it goes back to what some scholars have called America's original sin. I don't know if I like that that much just because it blurs, blurs the distinctions theologically uh, with what Adam did. But it's a very significant thing. Race-based chattel slavery, of which the 400th anniversary uh, was commemorated uh, in August, um, 1619, so 400 years ago. An English privateer ship named the White Lion, carrying tw between 20 and 30 Africans in chains, landed at Port Comfort in Virginia. The crew exchanged this human cargo <coughs> to colonists uh, from nearby Jamestown for food. This was the first documented instance of enslaved people setting first in the colonies that later became the United States of America. It should be noted that African slavery was firmly established in the Spanish and Portuguese colonies in Mexico, Central and South America, and also in the Caribbean islands where black slaves have been working the sugar plantations since the early 1500s. As a matter of fact, the slaves that landed in Virginia had been plundered by the white lion from a Portuguese slave ship, the San Juan Batista, which had gotten the people from the West African coast, modern-day Angola. The Africans began in Virginia as indentured servants, and they worked alongside almost 1,000 white indentured servants who had sold themselves to pay for their passage to the new world, so this is very common. You have poor um, people in England, let's say, they couldn't afford the passage, so they sold themselves uh, in indentured servitude for a certain finite amount of time. However, within decades, by 1661, I think, race-based slavery was well established. The white indentured servants were able to gain their freedom, but, the, but with, uh, within that generation, all blacks born into servitude were permanently slaves, so it started at that early stage. Slavery spread, and why? Uh, James 5, I think, explains it. Uh, James 5, 1 through 5 says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workmen who mowed your, field, your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. So this is, uh, I think, probably pretty relevant as you look at it. Why, why did it happen? It was good for some people. It made a lot of money uh, to enslave others and have them do work, as James says, out in the fields and never pay them for it. Well, I don't have to go through all of this history carefully. You're probably well aware of, of the, uh, the divide in our country over slavery, the civil war that happened. Um, and then the 13th Amendment that ended child slavery um, in the United States. A deep sense of national guilt, I think, colors the words of Abraham Lincoln in the second inaugural, one of the most remarkable po uh, political speeches ever. I can't imagine a politician having such theology of providence and the depths of God's purposes as you see in Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural. It's not long, and you should read it, but this is a part of it. Keep in mind, the war was still going on, but was almost done when he, was, uh, when he gave the speech. If God wills that the Civil War continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another, drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's just an incredible statement. 
and I think you get the sense that, you know, we're all in this. And uh, the Civil War has come as part of this, and, and God uh, dealing with this. So you, whether you agree with Lincoln's theology or not, you should read through it and deal with it. But there was still a sense of national guilt over slavery. Well, the years that followed uh, the end of the Civil War were very difficult. Um, and just these words bring up a lot of memories. I'm not commenting on them. It's just this part of the tapestry. Sharecropping, the KKK, lynchings legal injustices, like in the movie To Kill a Mockingbird, segregation, Jim Crow laws, all of these things continuing until the civil rights movement, making life very difficult uh, for uh, African Americans. By the way, there's a museum in Greensboro that I've been to that, that has lots of pictures that give you a sense of what life was like during that era, and it's well worth visiting. Uh, it's hard to visit without you know, pretty deep emotion. Uh, then, in the, in the 1950s and 60s, we have the Civil Rights Movement. 1954, Brown versus Board of Education ended legalized segregation in government schools. There was, unfortunately, massive unrest in implementing this ruling and integration in government schools in the South. You can still see the pictures of that. Governors of certain states resisting and, and all kinds of terrible things that happened with that. And then Martin Luther King Jr. and his nonviolent protests were a major part of the Civil Rights Movement. Along with this comes uh, the track record of white evangelical Protestants and their uh, record of sin in this area. The abolitionist movement in the North was soon tied to liberal theology. Northern Baptists went for the social gospel by the end of the 19th century. Southern Baptists uh, held to a biblical view of salvation but an unbiblical exercise of slavery before the war and race relations after it. So this is one of the major themes that we have to keep in mind. It's strange. It's very difficult, it seems, for Christianity, Christians, Christian movements, and institutions to keep together biblical faithfulness, especially on salvation and inerrancy, things like that, biblical theology with activity in social issues. It generally just historically seems to have been one or the other. And so the abolitionist movement just went liberal, whereas the southern movement maintained Protestant convictions of justification by faith alone and inerrancy, uh, but we're wrong on the social issues. And so it just, it seems very difficult, and it's a, it's a theme that we're addressing even now, even at the seminaries now, at that level. How do we maintain commitment to the inerrant word of God and biblical orthodox teaching on salvation, and get involved at an appropriate level in dealing with social sins? That's a problem. What is the social gospel? Walter Rauschenbusch, among others, uh, presented it, uh, Christian name, The Social Crisis, 1907. <clears throat> he says this, religion's chief purpose was to create the highest quality of life for all people. So what is, what is the problem with that view? That's a summary, I don't know if it's a direct quote, but that would be the social, what is, as you look at that, religion's chief purpose was to create the highest quality of, I think you would not mind me adding a word, earthly life, earthly life for all people. These are God, okay? Okay. Yeah. First and foremost, we want to be God-centered always. So thank you for that. It leaves out the highest. The central purpose of the gospel is to make your life better. That sounds like the prosperity gospel. <laughs> And, and that's something that we're seeing all over the world. And when, when you start doing that, which is like, how is my life now? That's not primarily what the gospel come, comes to do. 
Paul said these words, if for this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men to be pitied. Keep in mind, I don't think that Paul was speaking of the entire Christian church, although I think he desired the church to follow his example. He was speaking of himself and his mission. In other words, I had a really good gig going on when I was a Jew. I was, I was ladder climbing to success. Did that include financial success? You better believe it did. Annas and Caiaphas were wealthy men. And so he was climbing the ladder of success, threw it all away. What was his life like after he began his ministry in the gospel? Well, how would you characterize Paul's life? Your best life now, like Joel Osteen? I don't think so. Everywhere he went, it was nothing but trouble. He was, if Satan has like a post office top ten, let's take him out list, like whatever, Paul was number one and number ten. All right, we got to get this guy done. We got to kill him. We got to shut him down. He was top satanic priority. And what did that make his life like? Well, read about it in the book of Acts. No, religion's primary goal is not to make your life in this world the best it can be. It's not. Vertically, it's to reconcile you to God and to prepare you for the next world and to teach you to suffer in this life so that you can store up treasure in the next and you can, you know, lead others to Christ. Well, anyway, social gospel. Social gospel is a Protestant movement that zeroed in on society's moral problems. Poverty, alcoholism, crime, racial tensions, slums, child labor, prisons, poor schools, etc. The social gospelers sought to bring Christ's kingdom to earth by rectifying these social ills, and there was usually a blurring of other theological issues, denial of the need for spiritual salvation, fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man, etc. Basically, you don't need to save anyone spiritually. That's done, whatever, or it isn't, or it doesn't, you know, it's just not how they're thinking. What that led fundamentalists to do is to reestablish fundamentals of the gospel, such as the virgin birth, uh, the miracles of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the foundational doctrinal issues, and plus to retreat from society and go into fundamentalist enclaves and not do anything in the world. Just pull in, circle the wagons, and protect the gospel. And so that went on until Carl Henry and others did, like the NEG conscience of the modern evangelical, all these kind of things. John Stott at Lausanne was talking about two wings, you know, gospel faithfulness and, and social involvement or mercy ministry, ministry of the poor and needy. I don't like the two wings uh, analogy because I don't consider them equal. I think the, the, the doctrine of the gospel supersedes the life that flows from it. Uh, so I don't, I don't like the two wings aspect. I, you know, I keep picturing, picturing one wing really bigger than the other and then the dove flying in a big circle. Strength that from the video. <laughs> All right, 1845. Now we're just talking about history. Just this is Andy on Tuesday afternoon thinking of what I should say on Sunday morning. So I, you know, I'm just thinking of relevant history. 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention was started. Uh, and the precursor of that was something called the Triennial Convention. Every three years. Uh, Missions-minded Baptists got together because of Adoniram and Ann Judson, and then others eventually, to support Baptist missionaries on the field. Judson converted to Baptist convictions en route to India because uh, he was going to try to refute Baptist William Carey and found that the New Testament seemed kind of Baptistic. Uh, isn't that amazing? Um, and so by the time he got there, he and everyone on board uh, that was coming over that were no longer Congregationalists, infant baptizers, but they were Baptists. Well, the Congregationalists cut off their financial support, and then Luther Rison and others went back and started going from Baptist church to Baptist church and started you know, raising money. And that really is the origin of the Southern Baptist Convention. The idea is that Baptist churches should band together to do things too big for any one local church. 
do. So it's a voluntary association of independent Baptist churches to pool money. And so the Triennial Convention got together every three years to pool money and talk about strategy and missions. Um, however, the issue that was ripping the country apart eventually ripped that group apart too, and that was the issue of slavery. In 1845, slave-holding missionaries wanted to take their slaves on the mission field, and the Northern Baptists did not want any part of that, and so they separated in 1845. That's the origin of the Southern Baptist denomination. I didn't know that when I became a Southern Baptist, just want to say that. It's a kind of history you find, it's like, wow. I mean, how did this even come about? I was raised Irish Catholic in eastern Massachusetts. I knew almost nothing about any of this history or the battle for the Bible in the 70s, 80s. I learned all that long after the fact. It was just interesting. But it's a fact, uh, 1845. That was also the year that First Baptist Church started. Uh, this church started in 1845 as well. Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, founded as a strong Calvinistic institution in 1859 in Greenville, South Carolina. The founders of, of Southern Seminary defended the righteousness of slaveholding and white supremacy. Uh, four leaders, there's no doubt about it. The key leaders of Southern throughout uh, the era of, rec uh, of Reconstruction into the 20th century clearly espoused white supremacy and the lost cause, a desire to reestablish slavery in the South. There's no doubt about this. My good friend Greg Wills is a, a historian there at Southern, and, and in 2017, under the leadership of Al Mohler, just wanted to know, just let's find out the truth about the founding and the history of Southern Seminary. And so it's, it's all out on the table in 2017. All the while, the seminary taught accurately on personal salvation and inerrancy until there started to be other issues in the 1940s, 50s with liberal theology at any rate. First Baptist Church, Durham, North Carolina, similar to Southern, the church was clearly on the wrong side of the civil rights issue. There's a lot of embarrassing moments right up in the 50s and 60s. Um, the NAACP was starting along with the civil rights movement a desire to try to integrate white churches. I think leaders here at this church found out about it and uh, mobilized deacons to stop black people from being seated at worship. Um, and you know, there's there's some embarrassing pictures of people blocking others trying to get in. Um, in 1976, Zane Pratt told me this, Jack. Um, you know, you were there at the time. Pastor Dick Henderson was doing uh, prison ministry, wanting to baptize some black men who had brought, been brought to faith in Christ. And what Zane told me, what I did not know until this past Saturday, um, was, or a week ago Saturday, that um, that First Baptist Durham is a white church was written into the bylaws. It was official language in the bylaws of the church. And Dick Henderson, the pastor at the time, said, if that's not changed, we need to cease being called a Christian church. Mm -hmm. What happened was uh, strong leaders in this church basically ran him out. Mm -hmm. A lot of those same people were waiting for me when I got here. <laughs> they were the ones that opposed my, the early couple of years of my ministry here. So that's how fresh and recent all of this is. It's not like ancient, we're talking ancient history, we're talking about our history. Along with that, Martin Luther King Jr., leader of the Civil Rights Movement, was ordained Baptist minister. He used the principle of nonviolent protest employed by Gandhi in India, which Gandhi got from, the, from Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. So it's kind of like an echo of an echo or something like that. Uh, Gandhi was not a Christian, but he used these kinds of principles in India to oppose British rule, aspects of British rule in India. Um, and so uh, Martin Luther King Jr. used those kinds of things as over against the Black Panthers and, and the Black Muslim movement, which was more aggressive, maybe a little more violent. Uh, Nonviolent uh, resistance uh, demonstrations, that was kind of the centerpiece of, of Martin Luther King's uh, approach. His own lifestyle and his doctrine are worthy, as worthy of investigation as that of the founders of Southern Seminary. So I, I had to put that, I had to nuance that. It's like, why do we even need to look at Martin Luther King Jr.'s 
personal lifestyle and his doctrine. Well, we did it with the white founders of Southern Seminary. In the end, we don't shrink back from any historical truth. Just understand, all historical inquiry has its own bias. And so it's, it's difficult. Also, Martin Luther King Jr. is a, uh, an esteemed figure in African-American society. And it's very, very difficult to bring up certain aspects. You know, the fact that he was assassinated, that he led a courageous, courageous life, etc. It makes it very, very difficult. When John Piper at the MLK 50 event on uh, Gospel Coalition did a couple years ago, 50th anniversary since his, associate, uh, his assassination, said that he wasn't certain that Martin Luther King Jr. was a Christian, uh, that, that took a lot of courage. Uh, there was a lot of aspects of that. I know that a friend of mine, I won't say his name, but somebody who's very strongly uh, in leadership in the in black evangelicals and the reform movement said, when asked, do you think that James Cone is a Christian? Do you think that MLK Jr. is a Christian? James Cone, he said, absolutely not. Uh, MLK Jr., I hope so. So that's, it's just difficult. Um, so how, how do you look at it? For me, it's relevant just in terms of the theology. The theology. Um, he, he had kind of a standard uh, liberal theology questioning the bodily resurrection of Christ aspects of that. But there's no doubt that the changes in the civil rights movement, the changes that the civil rights movement have been sweeping. So much so that as I spent two hours on Thursday working on the topic of white privilege and trying to understand it um, and read about it, I think, you know, I, I don't want to steal some thunder from, you know, a few minutes from now, but um, institutional racism is hard to find in America. And wherever it's found at this point, it's going to be zeroed in on by the mainstream media and by matters of the Justice Department or members of it, it's going to be addressed. It's extremely toxic soil for institutional racism at this point. Doesn't mean that people aren't racist anymore. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying institutional racism like in the Jim Crow segregation era and all that. It's been overturned and overwhelmed, really, by the civil rights movement, I think, at this point. And wherever it's found, it should be destroyed and, and overturned. All right, so let's just go recent issues. That's more kind of <coughs> further back history right up to the 60s and 70s. Now more recent issues. 2008, Barack Obama's election as <coughs> African-American president. Significant moment. A series of police issues in which black men were killed or beaten by law enforcement uh, officers inflaming many in the black community. Colin Kaepernick, uh, then quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, began a kneeling protest in reference to these issues. Baltimore riots connected to one particular incident. 2016, Donald Trump was elected. Uh, along with that, uh, have come lots of connections and all that to white supremacy, uh, KKK, alt-right, though he repudiates it, et cetera. It's very, very hard to defend an individual. I, I, there's so, much, so many things I could say about him. You know, politics, when you come down to it, it's, it's all about compromise. And, you know, for me, it's just that's not the way I'm wired is compromise. So um, just I think the next BFL class we're doing is on politics. So. Great, we're going to go right into that one. Um, <laughs> um, Black Lives Matter was a movement that came up in reference to the police incidents, uh, et cetera, implying that you know uh, some of the killings had to do with race, which they may well have, and then Confederate statues being put down. These are all, I mean, this is just, I'm just doing a quick impressionist painting here. Just, you guys remember these were all to mind some of the incidents. Now let's talk about some of the themes. And here we get into the hot water. This is where we get into the things that I found have been just incredibly poisonous uh, when it comes to unity. People just don't agree on, on a lot of these things. All right, so I mentioned James Cone a moment ago, Black Liberation Theology. I learned about it when I was at Gordon-Conwell and hadn't thought about it much until about a year or two ago when I found that certain people were finding aspects of his theology helpful. 
Um, so this is James Cohn. The right question for theologians are always related to the basic question. What has the gospel to do with the oppressed of the land and the struggle for liberation? Any theologians who fails to put, uh, place that question in the center of his or her work has ignored the essence of the gospel. Wow. So the essence of the gospel has to do with oppressor versus oppressed. Uh, another quote, it is impossible to interpret the scripture correctly and thus understand Jesus aright unless the interpretation is done in the light of the consciousness of the oppressed in their struggle for liberation. Again, just like the social gospel, it's totally tied to this world. You know, so the gospel has to do with improving lives in this world, but specifically in the issue of those that are oppressed and throwing off the yoke of their human, human oppressors. We're not talking about demonic oppression or Satan's yoke or any of that. We're talking about human oppression. For James Cohen, then, liberation is not spiritual liberation, and salvation is not eternity in heaven, is completely tied to this world. Quote, the principle for an exegesis of the scriptures is the revelation of God in Christ as the liberator of the oppressed from social oppression and a political struggle, wherein the poor recognize that their fight against poverty and injustice is not only consistent with the gospel, but is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, we're done. At that point, I mean, when I read something like that, that's just wrong. Does it mean that any, you know, he has no helpful insights? I'm not saying that. I mean, we look at all kinds of insights from complete, you know, unbelievers, etc. I'm just saying, since this individual is presenting himself as teaching Christian theology, that's a significant problem. The importance of understanding systemic, not merely individual evil. We have to just camp in on this. This is when when all when all is said and done. You look at the kind of characteristic white perspective and the characteristic black perspective. This comes up as almost job one or the top priority. Individual sin also along with that individual personal responsibility versus systemic or societal or institutional sin. These end up being huge issues. And since I believe there's truth on both sides of this, I don't really think that we as Christians should have to uh, choose between either one. Individual choices do affect individual personal lives, and people may, need to make wise choices. It is also true that surrounding societal pressures and societal think, uh, sins do affect life, um, and that Christians have a unique role to play as salt and light. So that's just kind of general. Race-based child slavery was a system in the United States bigger than any individual acts of kindness, or even the emancipation of specific slaves by one owner that came to repudiate slavery. So a slave is bigger than that. You get one individual person who's kind-hearted and does the right thing, that doesn't deal with the whole system. The whole system was a problem. A similar case would be, let's say, the CEO of a sugar uh, manufacturer becomes convinced that the company's been exploiting workers. If he comes to Christ and then tries to right the wrongs, you know, make you know, better wages and all that, what do you think will happen with his board? Um, what's, you know, it's just bigger than one individual making the right choice. However, lots and lots and lots of individuals making the right choice does make a difference. So you can't just give up and say, well, there's nothing that, that I can do. All right, again, I'm listing just themes here in no particular order. Um, critical race theory, this is going to come up also uh, on college campuses. Uh, and you're, you're going to see this, this is just hugely a part of what generally uh, people are called social justice warriors, talk a ton about this on, co on college campuses, not just about race, but about lots of areas. So let's talk about these premises. Premise number one, our individual identity, who we are as individuals, is inseparable from our group identity. These are premises of critical theory. Premise number two, oppressor groups subjugate oppressed groups through the exercise of hege I don't know how to say it. 
hegemonic, hegemonic, hegemonic power. All right, so institutional power, I guess. Premise number three, our fundamental moral duty is freeing groups from oppression. Premise four, lived experience is more important than objective evidence in understanding oppression. This is huge. A lot of people come off with these views, come off with like, don't confuse me with the facts. What matters is what I've lived through. So um, that's, anyway. All of this, by the way, this uh, a summary I'm getting from a guy named Neil Shenby, uh, Shenby Apologetics Association. He, he elaborates a long time on these things. My outline was already at 14 pages, so I decided to cut out his elaborations. So, but I would commend him for a good analysis. Uh, premise number five, oppressor groups hide their oppression in the guise of objectivity, like classes like this one, uh, as we're kind of walking through and looking at both sides of the equation. Uh, premise number six, individuals at the intersection of different <coughs> oppressed groups experience oppression in a unique This is what intersectionality is all about. However many ways you're part of one of the oppressed groups, it gives you greater and greater and greater moral authority to speak. Does that make sense? So if you're a woman, that's one level. If you're a black woman, that's additional level. If you are, let's say, disabled, and you can just keep on going, there's just different ways in which groups have a disadvantage. There's privilege on the other side. The more of those that are stacked up, then the more um, the moral authority you have, the more right you have to speak. Uh, so one application of this theory came with an evangelical <clears throat> author um, with over 20,000 Twitter followers responding to Pastor Tim Keller's op-ed in the New York Times. This is what uh, was said in Twitter. Tim Keller has no authority to teach on justice. None. How incredulously privileged for Keller, a rich white man whose ministry targets rich people, to fashion himself as the judge of whether or not injustice rises to the level of oppression. No. The only ones with divine authority to, divine the, to define the bounds of oppression are the oppressed themselves. Oppressed and colonized people wrote every single word of the Bible. The Jewish people were colonized people. <coughs> Jesus himself was a brown, indigenous, colonized man. Not one person who the scripture was written by or originally written for sat in the social location of Tim Keller. No. Tim Ke uh, Keller has no authority to speak or teach on justice. His silence, when called on to speak, helped pave America's path to white nationalism. Well, there's a lot of attitude in that. Um, and you can see just how you're cowed into silence if, you haven't, if you're not part of the oppressed group. That's what intersectionality is all about. If you haven't heard about it, there it is. Uh, now, along with this comes a redefinition of racism. I didn't realize this was true until about a year or two ago. <coughs> Um, racism, then, is not merely a sense of superiority based on race, but also power structures behind it. So what that means is, with this redefinition, it is impossible for a black person, for example, to be a racist. He or she could be prejudiced. Since they lack power, they can never be racist. So there's a distinction, then, between prejudice and racism. And again, this happens a lot with redefinition of terms and words. <coughs> Along, I'm just doing lists of themes that have come up. Woke uh, is a word that's come up which, would, which means awareness of social issues significant, especially to the African-American community. The idea is, you know, you're kind of asleep and then you wake up to what, how things are really going on uh, socially and, and societal issues, etc. Intersectionality, we just covered it, so let's just keep on going. Identity politics, in which candidates seek to connect on the basis of these kinds of things. <laughs> kinds of, of um, intersectional issues. 
So um, the idea here then is like you are your group. And so what that means is, and I think the Democratic Party specifically targets certain groups and puts together um, a pastel kind of coalition to get elected, et cetera. But it's very, they're very strong on identity politics, which is what groups you're in and trying to put together uh, groups, et cetera. White privilege, the concept that white people have a basic advantage over non-white in American society, resulting in educational, employment, and economic superiority that is not essentially merit-based. Let me just stop and talk about this briefly. Um, I've been hearing about this for probably five, seven years. I never took really time to research it until <coughs> past Thursday. And um, here's, here, let me just go to the end of the equation. What I think the deal is on this, as I said, institutional, structural racism will have a hard time surviving in this present climate. It doesn't mean it couldn't come back. It could. And it's good for us to know what Jim Crow was like, segregated. It's good for us to know how evil all that was and understand that. Just right now, it would be very, very hard for any of that to survive. Alright? However, what do, what do we say about individuals who are in positions of power throughout society who are personally hostile toward people of another race and use their positions to block or thwart other people from things they're trying to do? That's the level at which we're fighting now. Is that happening? I, just about guarantee it is. But here's the thing, let's remove race for a moment and just talk human to human. This is what I find, okay? Basically, in the second grade commands that I should love my neighbor as myself, right? I am either going to be friction or lubrication to other people all day long, right? I'm gonna either help them or hinder them. Think about traffic, all right? I was in a merge situation and this car was skipping 30 cars and then put the blanker on one to get over. <laughs> Wasn't thrilled. Thought I was like an instrument of the justice of God. <laughs> say, you, know, you need to wait your turn. The rest of us do. The Holy Spirit overwhelmed me at that moment and said, make a bubble. Make a bubble. Slow down. And they just slid right away. Wave to me. So I got the wave. So that was good. <laughs> That's just a symbol of a moment in which I was either going to be friction or lubrication. And I'm just telling you, this happens all day long. You're going to hold the door for somebody behind you or not. Uh, it happens in your marriage. You're going to bless or you're going to curse. And, and we go in and out of blessing and cursing all the time. We are just so much that way. Are there some people that do it consistently on the basis of race? Undoubtedly. But there's only one solution. There cannot be a government solution to that. There can't be a legal solution to that. The gospel alone will change that. I just, I just want to bless the people around me. I really am overwhelmed with that feeling right now. Tomorrow morning, I don't know. I hope so. All right. I hope that I'll be so filled with the Spirit that I'll want to love my neighbor as myself. But I'm just saying it is Christ and the Holy Spirit and His example and the parable of the Good Samaritan I want to walk by, but there's someone bleeding by the side of the road. I need to stop and help. The gospel makes me do that. You see what I'm saying? That's what we're dealing with here. So white privilege, is it real? Undoubtedly, at a certain level, it's just harder to move. It was harder for me to be a white person in Japan than to be a white person in North Carolina. It just was. Little kids stood and stared and pointed at us. You weren't born yet, but it happened. happened to your older siblings, all right? We were a marvel to the people of Tokushima. And people wouldn't sit next to us on the bus or on the, on the train, which initially bothered me, and after a while I kind of liked it. I mean, I had <laughs> you know, but nobody would sit next to me. So I, I think there are moments, 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 moments that happen, and it's hard. 
Um, but I think that the only defeating of that is the teaching like I'm giving right now on loving your neighbors yourself and not being that way, et cetera. So white privilege. Institutional racism I've addressed. Social wealth redistribution such as Marxism, uh, uh, socialism, all that. These things come up. I am opposed to it. Um, there's all kinds of things we can say about it. Reparations, which is really a fascinating study. We don't have time. We have five minutes left. Um, this is what I do want to say, though. All of us, for the most part, are sitting in this room. We have a wealth level almost unparalleled in the history of the 20th centuries of the Christian church. The challenge for us, how much are we living in an air-conditioned bubble? And how much are we willing to get out of our comfortable, wealthy environment and be with poorer people and lead them to Christ or minister to them, either as cross-cultural missionaries or right here? That's the challenge for all of us. I actually think there's much more wealth privilege than there is white privilege. And this is what James specifically addressed. If a rich man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes in your church, and then somebody who's got the traffic, has nothing to do with race, has to do with is he wealthy. And if he's wealthy, you're going to give him, the, you're going to hold the door open, you're going to, oh, welcome. And it's like, don't do that. James is saying, don't do that. So for me, the question is, how much does God want me? And it's very much what I've been preaching. I'm telling you, this First Corinthians preaching I've been doing has been grilling my life. It's like I feel this gap between what I'm preaching and how I'm living that is almost intolerable, and I find it through the Holy Spirit a helpful challenge to say, in what way am I beating my body and making it my slave so I can win others? And that's the question that's in front of me, and, and that's the real challenge for me. It's not so much race law, that's part of it. How much are we willing to become uncomfortable in our lives to win people to Christ? Rick, go ahead, brother. You get the last word, then I'm going to close the prayer.